Thank you, God, that we're hidden under the shadow of your wings. Thank you for your peace that passes understanding, God. Just let your peace rest heavily upon us right now, God. Just stop for a moment. Just listen for the voice of his affection toward you. Just listen for his voice of affection for you. What does he want to say to you? Just, just stay in that receive mode. While I'm going to open a Bible, I'm going to read some stuff. The temptation is going to be to go into brain mode. Oh, he's teaching something now. Please don't do that. Just, just stay in your heart in that place where we've been worshipping. That, that song that we just did and we did for a reason. Because uh, this is more about ministering something than teaching something. Um, next weekend we've got our Sunday friends. That's not even a word. But we have our, it is now, we've declared it to be so. We, we, we have our Sunday friends. And um, as a leadership team as well, from, I really should know what day, from, what, from Friday through to Sunday, and then we'll continue with some stuff on Monday and Tuesday, we've got the, the national leaders from Elijah House coming over to just, you know, put us through some spiritual draino. Um, which is, you know, clean out kind of stuff. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. You know, as a leadership team in particular, we want to, you know, make sure our hearts are in a really good place and we're not above getting ministry, so we're lining up. Um, but also it's a ministry that, um, if you don't know about Elijah House, it's a ministry that's all about healing hearts. And um, it's called Elijah House because um, of that verse in Malachi that says that before the coming of the Lord he will come and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers um, and essentially that's that's the heart of their ministry is to is to heal those mother and father wounds in all of us and set us free to be everything that we were created to be and um, there, there is a language that they're going to bring and there's going to be just some some incredible biblical and experiential foundation that that's going to bring to us that we want to see, you know, as, as part of our core and part of our foundation. So, um, Amy, you don't, most of you don't know Amy, some of you know Amy, but Amy's become a really dear friend of ours. She's part of Paradox Church over in WA where Brad and Lisa Joss are. Um, they've become very, very dear friends of ours. And um, she's going to be ministering next Sunday. And I just wanted to, before we kind of dive into something like that, I just want to remind us of something that's really, really super important. And I'm going to open at John chapter 8. But again, like I said, I know I'm opening the Bible. And I'm even reading from it. But stay out of head mode. Because this is more about heart than it is about head. Um, this is one of my, my favorite passages in John chapter 8. I mean, I have lots of favorite passages. Um, the whole thing is good, really. I mean, it's all good. Just open anywhere and read, and it's all good. I mean, Leviticus is a bit strange, but it's, it's all good. Um, but this is one of my favorite stories. Um, and it is the woman caught in the act of adultery, um, because it's a passage in which we, we see the real Jesus on display. I mean, there's, it's not like there's the fake Jesus in other passages. <laughs> it's not like that. But you just you, you see his heart so clearly in this. So... Um, 
Jesus went on to the Mount of Olives and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stopped down on the gr- and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only with Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is such a beautiful picture of who Jesus is because he's in a situation that's basically been set up by a political spirit. And that is, we're going to trick you. We're going to trap you in an argument and corner you and go, ha ha, gotcha. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where, where you feel like you're being set up and <laughs> hey all the time you're talking about your kids doing this to you or you no no <laughs> um, where you're you're being set up and you're being posed a situation and a question where there really is no right answer because no matter what you do it's like that they want to go haha checkmate um i've been in board meetings not of our church thankfully um but all the stories that are coming flooding back to my head as i think of that are, are we're all actually church meetings um unfortunately where this political spirit was um gonna get you gonna catch you out in a moment just you know no matter what you say it's gonna be the wrong thing here and I, I remember um, acutely knowing that's going on and thinking and, and being very, um, you know, when you're being accused, you're not at your best. Like, you've got all this stuff going on in your head and like, how do I get out of here? How do I stop this? How do I, you know? And yet Jesus seemed to not get stuck into that. He, he seemed to be absolutely uninterested in defending himself at that moment. And they bring this woman in, and of course, if this woman has been caught in the act of adultery, you don't have to think too hard about the kind of state that she has been brought in. And guys particularly don't think too hard about that, okay? But she, she has been brought in in a state that I would dare say is probably not fit for public consumption um, at, at this point in time. And... It says something about the religious spirit here as well because you've got the political spirit trying to catch Jesus out, but you've got the religious spirit, which is very... They're very strong bedfellows, the religious spirit and the political spirit. Um, In the process of trying to catch out Jesus, they have no care for this woman that has been brought in. Yeah, These are supposed to be the people that represent the heart of God, yet they have absolutely no idea. They bring the woman in. Put it down, and the reality of the law, because where they got this, this woman deserves to die, was actually from the law. 
And so they, they actually thought they were doing God a service at this point in time by bringing this woman out. Because that's, that was all they knew of God at this point in time, that, you know, the soul that sins must surely die. You know, she has done the wrong thing. Now, I'd love to know where the guy was. Probably heard people say that before, but I'd love to know where the guy was because typically, at least in what I'm aware of, it takes two to tango. I may be ignorant, I don't know, but anyway. They put her in front of Jesus and Jesus bends down and starts to write on the ground with his finger. Now, at our um, guess who's coming to dinner last night, it's, um, there was one of those questions. We, we put a whole lot of questions under the, under the thank you, placement. <laughs> Trying to think coherently after worship is so unfair. <laughs> it's a little mushy in there. Uh, under the placement, we put some of these conversation questions um, just so that we could have a good chat around the dinner table and get to know each other a little bit. And one of the questions was, something along the lines of remind me like if you could go back be taken back in a time machine to a particular event where would you want to go um and of course you know we talked about the you know the resurrection and you know lots of kind of cool events the 1800s i think if i remember rightly you know the dress the culture um i didn't think of this at the time but as i think about it now this is one of the places i'd want to go back to because i want to know what jesus wrote on the ground I would love to know. Clearly, what he wrote wasn't the point. Otherwise, it would have been recorded for us. Here's what I do know. The woman comes in, wears everybody's eyes. This is, you're allowed to answer sorry, at this point. Probably on the woman, most likely. She gets dragged in. They're on the woman. Maybe they've got one eye on the woman, one eye on Jesus, but this is, this is a, you know, a, and to see if he's going to answer right or wrong. But the eyes are on her. Jesus starts writing on the ground. Where does everybody's eyes go? To what he's writing on the ground. And when their eyes are on what he's writing on the ground, where are they not? On the woman. So even in a moment where Jesus is being accused and attempted to be trapped, the one thing on his mind is the dignity of this woman. And even in a small and simple act, he actually treats her so differently to what everything in their culture said her behaviour deserved. And then, you know, they're saying, yeah, she deserves to be stoned, you know. And he's like, yeah, sure, go ahead, you know. Let's start with, let's start with the person who's never, ever sinned. Let's start there. Go. Off you go. And we know how the story plays out. Have you ever been, in your life, treated in a way positively in a way that your behavior just didn't deserve think about how that feels for a moment most of us have probably got one i mean i'm sure we've had times where we've been treated as we didn't deserve on the other side it's like i didn't do that but let's think about the the good side of the coin where something you deserved you didn't get or something you didn't deserve you did get 
And what, what does that feel like? Because one of the things that Jesus shows us here is he doesn't treat us according to our behavior. He treats us according to our worth. He doesn't treat us according to our behavior. He treats us according to our worth. And interestingly, not what we think we're worth. I'd love to know that woman's story kind of beforehand, and I'd love to know it afterwards as well. I'd, lo I'd love to hear her tell her story of that moment. That, that would be another place I'd love to, you know, go back and, in the time machine or at least get the DVD off. You know, I'm open to that. And if it comes on Netflix, I'll watch it there too. But um, he showed her her worth by how he treated her. Yet, for us, our value and worth is so calibrated to other stuff. We, we, we fall into the trap of calibrating our own value and worth to what we do, the way that we behave. Did I, did I do the right thing here? Did I do the wrong thing here? Jesus, was that good enough for you? And Jesus just doesn't even look at that. He looks straight through everything that that culture said should be the way. And he saw the value and worth in this woman, treated her with dignity, and spoke to that. That's what he is like. Whatever we hit next weekend, when, when we, you know, and as Amy has, Amy's incredibly prophetic and she's incredibly powerful in, in her understanding of the human heart. And um, What I want us to remember is that no matter what we're dealing with, th this is the place we start. That Jesus treats us according to our true worth. Now let me jump back to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 3. And this is another time where, in this case, the voice of the Father is completely dislocated from behavior in a different way to the, to, to the woman caught in adultery. But this is the baptism of Jesus, and many of you may have heard me talk about this before. Um, Luke 3.21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, and he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, we typically read that with the context of Jesus' whole life. And you kind of go like, duh, as if the father wouldn't be well pleased with Jesus. Look at what he did. But the thing is, chronologically, he hadn't actually done it yet. He actually hadn't done any public ministry at all at this point in time. None. This is, this is before. This is even before the wilderness. This is before the temptations in the wilderness. This is before any public ministry. Jesus hadn't done anything. Yeah, as parents, when we talk to our kids like, oh, I'm so pleased with you, quite often it's because of something that they've done. And so it's so easy to read that in the vein of 
performance. And yet, when we really look at it, this comes before Jesus has done a thing. And the voice of the Father says, you are my beloved child, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, this wasn't about Jesus' performance at this point in time. This was about his essence. This was about who he was. Nothing to do with what he did. And that was the place Jesus began his ministry. And I, how did Jesus have such security in the midst of being surrounded by a whole crowd, this really awkward situation where they're trying to trap him, all eyes you know, are on him and watching his every move, and yet he seems unfazed. How did he do that? I don't know about you, but I'd find that just a, a little hard, maybe a little confronting. There'd be a few voices in my head going, don't stuff it up, Ferris, don't stuff it up, Ferris, don't stuff it up, Ferris. Oh, no, I just stuffed it up. Oh, that, did they see it? Did they not? Is my fly done up? Uh, you know, like, there's just all these things going on in my head that would be based, based in some other voice. And yet, I dare say that the reason that Jesus could just be so anchored in that moment was because he knew that voice that says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, that is the place that he lived from. It is not the place that he lived for. If that can sink in here, everything changes. And no matter what pain, what brokenness, what failure, what, whatever that we are facing or dealing with, we do it from a place of his pleasure. From a place where we are already the apple of his eye. We don't become it because of our choices. We already are. And when we know it, we, we, we make really awesome choices by accident. I love the way the Apostle John talks about pretty much everything. I mean, the guy is trippy on so I mean, Re Revelation, who was written by John, is just like out there. But there is this, this theme of, um, of heart that runs, through, you know, that runs through his gospel in a way that's different to the others. Um, and he was the one that um, it says in the Gospel of John. It's talking about John, and it's you know the disciple whom Jesus loved, and you know, and then it described, and he's saying that about himself in the Gospel that he wrote. <laughs> you know, he's calling himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Nathan can't hear me. He's in another room right now. So, my Nathan. So, um, who, yeah, my, I'm a little biased, but he's just the most delightful little thing. He's not perfect, much like his father, but he is, he is utterly delightful. And um, he has this, this thing that he keeps saying, I'm your favourite, aren't I? It's like, 
it's okay, you don't have to tell the others. <laughs> um, and my answer is, of course, you're my favourite Nathan in the whole wide world. <laughs> but there's, there's something about that that I just love when he does that, because he's actually not trying to diss his brothers at that moment in time. He's actually just kind of heart-to-heart -heart connected here. And he just has this thing where he's like, I, I know that I'm loved. I, and he, we knew this before he was born. And we just knew that he would find it very easy to give and receive love. We, just, we felt that in the spirit and, and he's kind of outdone our expectation in that. But there's something about that where he just knows that he is utterly, utterly adored. And as a result, he keeps, we keep getting feedback from his teachers. He's just the happiest kid I've ever seen. Like, he's just happy. He's just, I mean, sure, he can throw a good tantrum, just like the rest of us. I think he probably learned that from me too. But, um, <laughs> but how amazing is it to just know that you're absolutely adored? Yet the enemy so messes with our head, our culture so messes with our head and calibrates our value and worth to everything else but who we really are. Um, I have a, a, an illustration um, I often tell. Um, a, as a business, we run a women in leadership program all over the country, and as part of that, they do a, you know, a number of different diagnostic feedback things where they fill stuff out and other people fill it out too, and they get all this feedback. And then quite often in the Sydney program, they get 15 minutes with me um, with their diagnostic, and you think, well, what can you do in 15 minutes? Trust me. <laughs> um, with a good diagnostic tool, the voice of the Holy Spirit and some, some love for people, you can crack something wide open very, very quickly. And one of the things that, that confronts me in these sessions, and I'd often do anywhere between 20-something and 30 in a day, which is pretty full on, um, but the, the theme that continually comes out is you have no idea of your value and worth, do you? You, you have no idea just how amazing you are. You have no idea of, of who you really are because you've got all of these messages in here. And there, there's a couple of illustrations that I use to kind of debunk that. And um, one of them, and you may have heard me say this before, one of them is, you know, if I had a $100 bill, which I'd really like it if I did, it'd be awesome. Um, but let's say I had a $100 bill and I held it up in front of you, how much is that thing worth? It's worth 100 bucks, not a trick question. Now, if I take that $100 bill, I blow my nose on it, like really, you know, hock one on it. Yeah. Um, I, I screw it up, I spit on it, I throw it on the ground, I stomp on it, I pick it up, and then I go, you know, I don't like that color green. I don't like how you look. I just, and I just start insulting it. And then I hold it up in front of you again, obviously looking a tad worse for wear, but I hold it up in front. How much is that worth? Hundred bucks. Okay, but here's the thing. I get that. I, I totally get that because I've had hecklers before. Thank you, Donna. Um, a buck twenty-eight in New Zealand. That's right. It's even it's worth even more over there. Um, but if I was to take that to the bank in a bag and say, I need to swap this out for another one, they would do it. In other words, they would recognise its value despite the fact it's got snot and spit and stuff all over it. 
and you know what? You might feel like you have snot and spit and stuff all over you. You might feel like you might have been insulted. You might have had people tell you, I don't like that color on you. I don't like this about you. I don't like that about you. It does nothing to your value. Absolutely nothing because your value is calibrated to some, a higher authority. So in the case of the banknote, a higher authority called the Reserve Bank of Australia has declared what that is worth. And that is not up for grab. That, that is, that's not up for conversation. It's just that they've declared it, so that's what it is. Well, the creator of the universe has made a declaration at your value, about your value and worth, and I'll, I'll come back to what that is in just a moment. And there's no conversation that he's willing to enter into about that. The other one I often use is, um, I want you to imagine this stunning, like, huge pink diamond. Now, pink diamonds are the most valuable diamonds, I believe. I mean, someone who knows what they're talking about may. I believe that's right. I'm just going to run with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm told that pink diamonds are, are the most valuable diamonds. Can you imagine this huge pink diamond, this hulking thing? You know, perfect cut, absolutely stunning, priceless. Imagine it's sitting in the middle of the table here, and then as we all come in, now this is a bit of a dumb illustration because I'm personifying an inanimate object, but can you imagine that diamond that is absolutely priceless turning around and going, do you think I look okay in this? Like, is, is, this, is this pink kind of okay? Does this look all right on me? You know, does, is this cut okay? Like, you okay with this? You getting the idea of where I'm going here? We look at it and go, it just emanates beauty and value because of its essence. Yet how, often, how much more valuable are we than any pink diamond? And yet so often we sit here going, yeah, but if you knew what I did yesterday, if you knew what I did last week, oh, does this look okay? Do I, am I okay? Is, and yet we are this absolutely priceless work of art one of a kind and you know if someone came in and smashed the diamond sure it'd be on the news and that would be tragic but if someone came in and excuse the rough segue but if someone came in and killed you they would do life in prison or at least 10 years in new south wales but you know what i'm trying to say <laughs> um, because Murder is the most horrific of crimes because even our legal system and even at the core of us, we go, a human life is the most valuable thing of all. And that is people without the spirit of God and the perspective of heaven that, that say that. Now, ultimately, just think in earthly terms for a second, what determines the value of something? Perfect, the price that's paid for it. So, you know, if you saw this watch, beautiful as it is, Apple Watch, wonderful, functional. I know you're choking there, Cam, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's, it's hard to deny just how awesome this is. Let's say that had a price tag of $1,500 on it. As much as I love it, I probably wouldn't pay that much for it. I don't think. <laughs> to think about that. I don't think I would. Because while it's valuable, it's not that valuable. So we get this idea, even in church circles, that I'm valuable. I now have value. I was an absolute dirtbag, scumbag, scum of the earth, sinner. 
who Jesus died for and saved, and now I'm okay. And Jesus made me worthy because of what he did. I have a slightly different take on that that I think is better, just quietly. And that is, if we were scumbag, worthless, even before Jesus did what he did, what would he have paid that price? See, he paid the price of his life. There is no higher price one can pay than one's own life for something. And so he didn't do that to determine your value. He did it because of your value. And we think, well, Jesus paid the price for our behavior. Therefore, you know, I can kind of bounce it around in my head that I'm worth something now, maybe, because, you know, Jesus has made it so. And, you know, if he makes it so, then it is. Actually, it's better than that. See, you, you, you were made with the image and stamp of God on you. And whether you know it or not, you were made like him. And that is the most valuable thing of all. Now, it was as over there doing a drawing by the look of it, and this is helpful to my cause here. You don't have to show it to us. But can you imagine if, let's say afterwards, you know, Wazza came up and said, oh, I just, I got this thing during whatever. And you don't have to show anyone. It's okay, I didn't actually mean to single you out. It just perfectly fitted with my cause right now. Um, (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Now, imagine, yeah, let, let's say Wazza came up to me afterwards and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, hey, I, I, got, I drew this thing afterwards. Yeah, or, sorry, while, while you were speaking, and this is what it says to me. And then I said to him, you know what? That drawing is an absolute pile of junk. That, that, that just sucks. That is, that is just really, really bad. In fact, so, so bad. Yeah, best pastor ever, right? <laughs> and brother-in-law, right, while we're at it. You know, we're family here too. It actually was during rehearsal. That's the thing. I fixed it beforehand. But um, I don't quite know how that happened, but thankfully I was sitting down. A little confession of a moment I had there. Um, so... Would it be honouring of the creator to dishonour his creation? Like, would, 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 would Warwick be feeling the love from me at that point in time if I absolutely dissed his artwork? Probably not so. Yet, in, where, where is it in our religious heads do we get the idea that in some way demeaning ourselves increases him? It just isn't true. It doesn't honour the artist to say that their art sucks. It honours the artist to recognise their heart and their creativity in the midst of what they have created. So, 
as we, we we have been on a on a journey of heart healing and and heart stuff all year it never never stops whether it's been expressed through let's work let's get us more released in worship whether it's expressed in us coming together as community and actually opening our hearts to one another um, whether it's expressed in us you know facing um, our pain and our brokenness and actually bringing that into the light that whole process is one of discovering the treasure and beauty that is already in you. See, part of what I want to do here is do some fairly lasting damage to the accuser and just and release a, a spirit of adoption over us. Because this is the foundation of wholeness. This is, this is the foundation of every good thing that we walk into. This is the foundation of everything destiny. This is the foundation of everything kingdom life is that I not only know up here and interestingly scripturally, I, I'm not, the, the word know has nothing to do with this and everything to do with this. It's, it's, it's experiential. That, that we would know by experience the treasure, the beauty that we are and that any process that we go through of heart journey is about actually unlocking that and letting it out. More than it is fixing something that's broken. Because that, that, when I believe that there's something wrong with me. That is the basis of shame. And shame is the enemy of all that is good. Shame is the thing that causes us to hide. Shame is the thing that says, you can't let people see that. It goes right back to the garden. Many of you have heard me talk about that many times. And, you know, I don't know how many of you were told as a kid, you know, when you did something wrong, shame on you. you know, if there was one thing I would love my ministry to be known for is shame off you. Because shame is the enemy of everything that is good. Shame says you're dysfunctional, you're broken, there's something wrong with you. Whereas God says, no, you are treasure, you are beauty, you are, you are an expression of me. And everything that he does, everything in this process that we call sanctification, is about discovering that treasure and beauty. So no matter what is put in front of us next week and in the weeks that follow around the journey of our own hearts, I want to put a context around it that says this is about showing you what you're really worth, who you really are. So I'm going to pray for us right now. And so just, just go into receive mode for just a moment. There's two things that I want to pray over us. One, as I said, is that spirit of adoption. It says in Romans 8 that we have not been given a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear, but we've been given a spirit of sonship or a spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And that, that Abba, Father, Nathan got the idea of that Abba, Father thing when he goes, I'm your favorite, aren't I? 
that, that, that's that essence of just that intimate cry of, I know I belong, I know I'm loved, I know I have a place here in your heart. I know I don't have to fight or clamor for your attention, I just, I just have it. Because you utterly, utterly adore me. That spirit of adoption brings us into that experience with our Heavenly Daddy. So Father, I want to release that spirit over us right now. And in the name of Jesus, we take, we bind and we take authority over every voice that would say anything other than we are absolutely the beloved of God. That we are absolutely and completely loved in a way that is so far beyond our comprehension. And I want to pray a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That Paul prayed over the Ephesians that we would know how high, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ. One of the more modern versions says that we would know by experience that which is beyond our comprehension. Those of you in the room who are parents, I want you to just remember some of those key moments, and it may be when your child was first born, it may be when you looked at them as a baby, it may be, yeah, it may have been this week, it may, yeah, but those times where you look at them and go, oh my goodness, you are just unbelievably amazing and I had no idea it was possible to love anything as much as this. I just want you to remember that just for a moment. I want you to sit with that. And as you sit with it, I want you to, to, to comprehend that you're the one who's on the receiving end of that gaze. From your father. That you are absolutely the apple of his eye. I learnt more about the father's heart by becoming a dad and you know, I remember one of the first times Josh was oh, a week, barely a week, maybe two weeks old, tiny, as tiny as Josh got anyway, he was pretty big but as tiny as he ever got and I remember the moment where um, we first gave him a bottle and the way that he just kind of latched onto it and sucked it was this, the, the, one of the cutest things I had ever seen and I remember I just looked at that in that moment I just burst into tears and went oh my Gosh, you are so utterly adorable. That was just you know, one of those parent moments. I think I was pretty sleep deprived as well, but hey. And just looking at this little piece of perfection and going, oh my goodness, I had no idea I could love something so much. And that isn't even a glimpse 
of what your father feels about you. I just want you to sit with that just for a moment longer. Father, let your love marinate deep, deep, deep. Thank you that you don't treat us according to our behavior. In fact, the cross dealt with our behavior. You never measure us according to our brokenness. You don't even measure us on the measures that we use on ourselves. You show us what we're really worth. Lord, open our eyes that we may see and that we may experience and that every root of shame, that every root of rejection, every root of self-rejection would just have no room to hang around. as we gaze into your eyes and see love that is beyond our comprehension. So I'm just going to go and doodle away on the guitar for a bit and just, you know, look after the Atmo and just, just stay in that place and soak there for as long or as short as you need to. But if God's doing something, do you, actually, yeah, why don't you do that? Thanks, Ken. for us one last time and then just hang there like when, when you're done when you're through we're through if you want someone to pray with you stick up your hand and we would love to do that and if you're just having an interaction with the Father right now just keep doing it until you're done so Father thank you for your goodness and we just give you permission to blow our circuits out.